Well, we're reading about the work of this risen Lord, Revelation 12, 13 through 17. The text is on page 18. So when the dragon perceived that he had been thrown into the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male, and to the woman were given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly into the wilderness and to her place so that she might be nourished there for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent expelled water from his mouth after the woman like a river so as to cause her to be overwhelmed by the flood. But the ground helped the woman. Indeed, the ground opened its mouth and drank up the river that the dragon expelled from his mouth. So the dragon was furious about the woman, and off he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Amen. Father, I pray that as I give an exposition to this, your word, that you would keep me from error that you would enable uh, each of these people to be Bereans, discerning chaff from wheat, and only accept that which uh, is truth. And I pray that uh, you would bless the scriptures to our heart. We know it's not simply an academic exercise, but your word, you have chosen the foolishness of preaching to cause our hearts to be changed and transformed. And that's our desire, Father, to be more conformed to your image. And so we continue to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that has mystified Christians and non-Christians alike has been persecution. Why does it happen? Uh, why has there been such hatred for Christians uh, around the world? You'd actually think that they would be admired as good neighbors and good citizens. After all, you know, they at least the, the better of the Christians are uh, law-abiding, submissive, loving, non-revolutionary. They're model citizens, and yet the very fact that uh, they have a godly testimony is an offense to some, and the fact that they are totally loyal to Jesus, not to the state, uh, makes some states come after them with a vengeance. North Korea, I think, is one of the worst examples of that. Uh, last year, Solidarity International report documented that North Korea has routinely engaged in the following. Murder, extermination, enslavement, forcible transfer, arbitrary imprisonment, torture, rape and sexual violence, persecution, enforced disappearance, other inhumane acts, some of the inhumane acts would be like squishing Christians with steamrollers and things like that. Uh, the Solidarity International report goes on to say, Christians are reported to have suffered brutal violence. Forms of torture include beatings with fists or use of in implements such as electric rods, wooden pokers, metal poles, water torture through forced submersion, and being used as test subjects for medical training and experimentation. And what happens in North Korea happens in many countries around the world. Those testimonies could be multiplied thousands of times over, and many people are mystified at how humans can become so inhumane. Uh, people who have been uh, defeated and uh, like prison guards have been interrogated afterwards, and they have sometimes been mystified as to how they became so sadistic. 
Well, if you understand the doctrine of total depravity, you understand part of the equation, but this passage gives us one more factor that helps us to understand persecution, and that is that all non-Christian regimes have Satan and his demonic forces that stand behind that regime uh, and, and move uh, the, the rulers of it. Even though Satan was bound in AD 70, his emissaries continue to rule where they can. And my last message was on verse 12. It's kind of an introduction to what we're going to be talking about. But we're going to pick up at verse 13. Today we're only going to be able to cover two verses because we're going to deal with a major controversy that I think has to be settled before we can move on. What's new, right? <laughs> we keep running across controversies. Verse 13 says, so when the dragon perceived that he had been thrown into the earth, or literally thrown to the land, uh, even the place that Satan is thrown to, we saw uh, previously, was the land of Israel. And we've already seen that this great battle of verses 7 through 12 took place on Artemisius 21 of AD uh, 66. That would be May 4, uh, I believe. And when we looked at the sixth seal, I documented Jewish, Roman, and Christian witnesses who saw a huge heavenly battle in the sky. Uh, Satan and all of his angels were cast out of heaven. They were no longer allowed to uh, even have access to heaven to accuse the brethren. Remember, uh, this happened in the Old Testament, like in the book of Job, but you see other examples as well. No longer will demons ever have access to heaven. So this was a huge, momentous, historical event. Heaven was cleansed. But losing the battle, and now being restricted to planet Earth, really ticked off Satan. He is angry, and he takes it out on the church. We saw in verse 12, he was enraged because he knew he only had a little bit of time left, uh, namely between 80, 66, and 70, when he would be bound. So he does everything he can to destroy God, to get at God somehow. And so verse 13 says, So when the dragon perceived that he had been thrown into the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male. He vented his anger against the church. This is explaining another spiritual cause for persecution. So just as Satan and his emissaries were moving Roman uh, 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 leaders and Jewish leaders to persecute the church back then, He's involved in the leadership of North Korea and China and uh, America and in other places as well. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why I don't any longer vote for non-Christians in politics, no matter how good their policies are. Satan, they're pawns in Satan's hand. He can move them any way that he, he wants. In any case, it is important to realize that not all of Satan's forces were bound in AD 70. We saw that the prince, Satan, would be bound in AD 70, and the beast. Uh, so they stand really as, um, as a, um, a, a symbol of the doom that all demons are going to be facing, but the binding of all demons is going to be a long historical process. Daniel 7 says that the rest of the beasts were allowed varying degrees of freedom to continue to work until it was their appointed time and their appointed season to be bound. So there are seasons and times uh, when God binds more and more of these demons. Verse 14, 
And to the woman were given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly into the wilderness and to her place so that she might be nourished there for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now I'm going to look at every phrase in this uh, amazing verse in a little bit, but let me first of all point out that this flight from Jerusalem into the wilderness has been documented as being fulfilled in many, many of the church fathers uh, from the earliest times and on. This is not something we're looking to the future uh, to find fulfilled. They say it was fulfilled. Three of them even named the city that uh, they went to, Pella. Now there is question about whether they were accurate about the specific city. I think there is uh, evidence that uh, they may have fled to a neighboring region for the first three months. But in any case, the church fathers said that God warned the church in Jerusalem through a prophet and through an angel to flee from Jerusalem, to travel to the region of Perea, and three say it was to Pella as well as other areas in, in Perea. Um, the Clementine writings say that the early Christians obeyed Christ's command to flee and, quote, they were kept unhurt from the destruction of war, unquote. And many believe that those Clementine writings were dated, you know, within a century of these events. In about AD 325, the early church historian Eusebius, going off of earlier documents, said that the Jewish church that survived that war, and there was a large Jewish church that survived, it says they took its beginning from the exodus from Jerusalem when all the disciples went to live in Pella because Jesus had told them to leave Jerusalem and to go away since it would undergo a siege. Because of this advice, they lived in Perea after having moved to that place, as I said. Sometime in the same century, Epiphanius of Salamis wrote, for when the city was about to be taken and destroyed by the Romans, it was revealed in advance to all the disciples by an angel of God that they should remove from the city as it was going to be completely destroyed. They sojourned as emigrants in Pella, the city above mentioned in Transjordania, and this city is said to be of the Decapolis. So the flight out of, uh, the, uh, out of Jerusalem is very well documented, but what I want to do is I want to look at how it is symbolically stated uh, here in this verse. Notice the reference to the two wings of the eagle. This speaks of God's personal, supernatural provision for them. Uh, some versions have two wings of an eagle, as if the, the woman grew some wings. But the Greek is quite clear that it is two wings of the great eagle. In fact, in the Greek, the, the word the is emphasized twice it is two wings of the eagle, the great one. So who is the great eagle in the Bible? It is God. Okay, he gives the woman his wings and he personally helps her to fly away. So he doesn't just send his angels. This is a personal, supernatural deliverance. And like other parts of this very Hebrew book, this is based on Old Testament imagery. Let me give you a couple of those background verses that uh, commentaries point to. Alluding to taking Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, God said, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus 19.4. Deuteronomy 33.10-12 says, He maintained him in the wilderness as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, 
carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. So this emphasizes really a personal intervention. He was there actually visible in the form of a theophany in, in the book of Exodus and, and uh, Numbers. It was a pillar that glowed um, uh, brightly at night and it looked like a pillar of cloud uh, during the daytime. And so this is why many commentaries believe that this is a reference to God himself personally bearing this woman up. Now, one interesting side note is that if this is indeed a reference to the Old Testament symbol of God rescuing his bride out of Egypt on eagle's wings, taking her into the wilderness to preserve her, to protect her, then Jerusalem and Israel are now being likened to Egypt. Of course, that's not the first time that this book has done that. In Revelation 11, verse 8, God said that uh, the city where Jesus was crucified is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, right? Earlier, two times he had said that those who call themselves Jews, they really don't have the right to that name because they're not spiritual uh, Jews. So what's going on here is that the true Israel, the church, is being rescued out of spiritual Egypt, which is unbelieving Israel, and the point being made is it's not just Rome who was doing the persecuting, Israel was as well. And of course, that's been a recurring theme earlier as well. Another thing I think needs to be mentioned is that if the woman is taken away from the presence of Satan, which is what the last phrase of verse 14 says, then whatever place she has fled to has an absence of demons. I think this is really cool. Uh, even cities can be cleansed of demons. Uh, I think this is just an amazing concept when you, when you dwell on it a little bit. Very encouraging to me. Now, it may be that the demons evacuated after the radical Jews exterminated all of the Gentiles in that city. Some say that it was an empty city that these Christians went to. I don't know how you would prove that one way or the other, but that phrase indicates God can put up a spiritual hedge around a territory and keep demons and Satan from ever going into that territory, at least for a period of time. Now, if that is true of a city or a region like Perea, how much more so would it be true that God can keep demons out of your home and make your home to be a, a um, sanctuary, uh, so to speak? Scripture speaks of God sending his angels to guard us, to keep the enemy at bay. And I think seeing scriptures like this, this is one of several scriptures that you can lay hold of and have faith when you pray uh, over, uh, over your house and uh, pray that God would keep demons out of certain territories, like this building, for example. Um, uh, we, we ought to pray, the Lord, we want you to cleanse this building of all demons so that we're not having to have them take, snatch the seed out of the soil, snatch it out of our minds as soon as the word is being preached. Uh, that is something I think is very legit. So these 144,000, the remnant from Israel, were finally given reprieve in whatever location they went to, and we'll look at that in a bit, that location was demon-free. Praise God, okay? That little phrase is so encouraging. It gives me faith. But the most important point is that the wings of the great eagle imply that the church could rely upon God's supernatural presence. Okay, to compare it to the original Exodus, one would expect, okay, just like the original Exodus, there's probably going to be 
miracles involved, there's probably going to be some way in which God himself is showing himself visibly, and there were. In previous chapters, we looked at several miracles that took place at this precise time, at least if my theory of the timing is correct. We'll get to that in a bit. Now, I'll deal with um, a couple of the miracles under the next point, but let me remind you that if the Bible promises God's wings of protection, then we too can experience his supernatural presence because those promises of his wings are given to us. Malachi 4 verse 2 speaks of his supernatural healing. He says, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. So his wings are associated with supernatural healing. Psalm 17 verse 8 promises supernatural protection from the enemy. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, 7 promises supernatural provision. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Deuteronomy 32 promises the church supernatural guidance, training, and leading. Speaking of God's guidance of Israel with the glory cloud, it says, He, that is God, encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, and little eaglets, you, you, you can sometimes, uh, you may, may see videos of how they're training the young to fly. Sometimes the little eaglets will actually ride on the back as the mother is flying. And so that's what he's talking about here. Spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. So the wings of the great eagle can be yours. That's the point here. God continues to heal, to protect, to provide, and to lead us. And we should worship and adore him for his amazing provisions. Now, because so many unbelievers have uh, criticized this flight to Pella as being absolutely impossible, and because Christians and their responses are all over the map and in um, giving responses, sometimes that don't actually address the problem. Uh, they come up with different theories, but they don't address the problem that unbelievers bring. I thought it would be important to dig into this uh, a little bit more deeply. If you've read much on Revelation, you'll see that there are a number of different theories here, and uh, one thing that they're all agreed on, they're disagreed on when it happens, they're all agreed that John's writing here immediately brings to the mind of Christians two things, Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy. Now, the New Testament prophecy that would have immediately come to their mind was Christ's command for them to flee Jerusalem when they see all of these things happening. That's in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, Luke 21. But I want to start, first of all, with the Old Testament background, because this is, this is just an amazing passage. If you would turn with me, please, to Zechariah chapter 14, and I really would like you to follow along on this because uh, it is uh, a passage that it would have immediately popped into Jewish minds. They had long been anticipating uh, the events that are in here, and they've begun already seeing some of these events perfectly being lived out. So they would have uh, looked at this passage with intense anticipation. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading at uh, chapter 13 to show that this is a first century context. 
If you read commentaries, you'll see a lot of people say, well, man, there's just no way in history that the, the things in chapter 14 have ever come to pass, so this has got to be off in our future. Well, take a look at chapter 13, verse 7. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, verse 7 is quoted in Matthew 26, verse 31, as being fulfilled on the night that Jesus was captured in the Garden of Gethsemane and all of the disciples were scattered. They fled in every direction. So we have an inspired commentary. Can't contradict Jesus, right? We have an inspired commentary that anchors this verse in A.D. 30. Then the last phrase of verse 7 through to verse 9 shows that God would allow tribulation to come to his little ones, to his infant church, to purify it during the last days. And he says that two-thirds of the Jewish church would be exterminated and one-third would survive. So if there were 144,000 survivors, which we've already seen that there were, uh, of the Jewish remnant, and that's a third, then that means that uh, Jerusalem, or maybe Israel as a whole, had approximately 432,000 believers in it. So that was just a little factoid I thought I would throw in there in case you're wondering, how many Christians were there uh, in the first century in Israel? There was quite a few Christians. Um, too many people think that verses 8 through 9 are talking about the deaths of unbelievers in the Jewish war, but when we get to chapter 14, you're going to see it's different numbers for the number of unbelieving Jews who died. Um, the last phrase of verse 7 makes clear that the tribulation of verses 8 through 9 is a tribulation of believers. And verse 9 makes it very clear that these believers would be purified as a result of this tribulation that the Lord uh, allows to be brought into their lives. And it's actually going to make it into an incredibly strong church that would be prepared to take over the world. So chapter 13, verse 7 is AD 30. And then verses 8 through 9 is the persecution of the church up to AD 66, if you're wanting dates. Now let's look at the next chapter. Chapter 14 then deals with God's retribution upon unbelieving Jews for having persecuted the church. And he does this with a series of snapshots. First snapshot of the Jewish war and beyond is in verses 1 through 3. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Now we saw in a previous a sermon that the Roman armies that came to Jerusalem were indeed made up of all the nations of the empire. Uh, every language group, every skin color was represented when they invaded Jerusalem. And in terms of dividing the spoil, oh yeah, that happened too. Uh, in AD 66, Florus, Governor Florus, robbed the temple of 25 talents of uh, gold. Uh, just an enormous sum. And at the end of the war, Titus robbed uh, the temple of everything else. So yeah, they're, they're taking the spoil. Verse 2, the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Uh, Josephus records that um, the remnant of Jews at the city um, remained there after the war. Titus allowed Jews to remain. It was really not until the Bar Kokhba rebellion 
which was A.D. 132 to 135, that Rome just said, no more, we're, uh, we're making it illegal for any Jews to live in Jerusalem. But there was a remnant of unbelieving Jews that was allowed there uh, up until that time. Well, this is describing the earlier war. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And we've already documented that God's judgments were not just against Israel, they were against Rome as well. And during the same years that Israel was being destroyed, Rome fell apart and massive numbers of Gentiles from Gentile nations were killed in the civil wars, the plagues, and the other disasters that hit uh, the Roman Empire. Rome actually even lost large numbers in the beginning stages of the war. But now in verses 4 through 9, we have another snapshot of the same period of time. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Now, there are disagreements among scholars on how this verse should be translated, and I won't give a definitive interpretation this morning. Some people see it as a double landslide on both sides of the Mount of Olives, sliding down and filling up a valley rather than making a valley. And uh, they say it's similar to what Josephus described in the day of Uzziah. And archaeology certainly shows a first century massive landslide on both sides of the Mount of Olives. And I've given uh, one of the maps there that shows where and the amount of landslide that they have found. So there were, there were two valleys that were filled, but even if you take it the way that the New King James Version translates it, there is evidence of a split that happened that we can still see to this day that appears to have happened in that, that uh, AD 66 when we had earthquakes all throughout uh, the Mediterranean uh, region. Early historians tell us that the glory cloud left the temple, stood on the Mount of Olives, and this either created the earthquake or at least was accompanied by an earthquake. And that earthquake made massive amounts of the mountain fall away. The picture in your outline shows a Roman road that uh, used to go through that convenient gap. And I also have another picture that shows the amount of rubble there. Now, let me give you some of the order that I've pieced together from the Roman Christian and the uh, Jewish historians, the order of events. First of all, angelic voices warned Israel that if they did not repent, God would forever leave them. And I just love the way God gives warnings. He didn't just out of the blue, you know, bring judgment. We don't know what it's for. Uh, no, there's always a reason, and we know we deserve the judgment when the Lord uh, brings it. In any case, both angelic and prophetic warnings happened on this date according to Tacitus, Josephus, Ambrose of Milan, Eusebius, Yosipon, and an eyewitness rabbi by the name of Jonathan. Uh, this shows that the events of that day were God's supernatural intervention. So there were supernatural voices. Immediately after the voices came a supernatural theophany. Now, theophany is just a big theological word for some kind of a, a visible manifestation of God. So when there was the burning fiery, you know, the, what's it called? A bush. I guess that's what it's called. That was, it didn't just burn up. That's a theophany. 
And uh, when angels met uh, Abraham, one of the angels was God incarnate in the appearance of a man. That was a theophany. Well, the glory cloud, the pillar of cloud in the wilderness was another kind of a theophany. And even the uh, Jewish Talmud admits that this massive pillar of fire and cloud left the temple before the war, stood on the Mount of Olives in exactly the same way that Ezekiel says that the glory cloud left the temple, and it was an apostate temple, why the glory cloud remained there, I don't know, but that's what happened in Ezekiel, left it, stood on the Mount of Olives, and any Jew who knew his history at all would see this with foreboding. We're going to be exiled just like the exile happened in the time of Ezekiel. So it's a very literal fulfillment of this verse which says, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. According to Ernest Martin, there are three ancient witnesses to that glory cloud leaving the temple on Pentecost of AD 66, landing on the Mount of Olives, possibly resulting in the split uh, that you see uh, to this day. But that was a supernatural testimony that Israel was about to be abandoned to judgment. God very literally stood on the mountain. It was his personal presence to deliver his people. By the way, Eusebius uses this as an apologetic against the Jews. And he says, hey, that glory cloud that you all know about on the Mount of Olives is proof positive that uh, God's spirits left you guys and he's with the church. So he's, he's assuming this is common knowledge that people knew about the glory cloud on the Mount of Olives. Third, there was an earthquake reported on that same day by Josephus, Eusebius, and Ambrose of Milan. Whether the glory cloud uh, created the earthquake, whether the earthquake happened independently, we're not sure. But it was likely that earthquake that created the valley in the Mountain of Olives. And modern seismology shows the fault lines going through it. I think I gave a little picture that shows uh, where the fault line goes. So the mountain mentioned in verse 4 was literally split and literally had a landslide. So either way you translate this verse, it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled, exactly. Um, and all of that was done by God in order to accommodate the flight of the Christians. Now, there is a debate on the exact translation of the verse, but one of the points I think is important to bring up when you're debating with people on this subject of eschatology is that it could not have been worse than it was under the earthquake of Uzziah. Uh, you know, pre-mills, typically they talk about this, say, oh yeah, there's a split there, but no, no, this is going to be split from top to bottom. It's going to be much, much greater. And my response is, no, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says it's just going to be like it happened at the time of Isaiah. And notice the command there. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Azal's on the other end of the dip in the wilderness. And this, by the way, is the most logical route for the Christians to have followed on their way to Pella. It goes on, Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Notice that this is not an end-of-the-world kind of a flight, but they were to flee just like they fled in the days of King Uzziah. I think that fact alone makes it less cataclysmic. And as a side note, if they had not obeyed God's command, they would likely have been killed by the zealots who remained behind. When you read through Josephus, I don't know how you could come to any other conclusion. But the zealots 
were likely to avoid that brand new rift made by the earthquake accompanied by a landslide and especially if the glory cloud was resting on top of it. That would have been very unnerving and that the Jews were unnerved by that could be seen by the fact that to this day the Talmud, the Jewish uh, monster series of books, records that uh, the glory cloud left right before the war went up on the top of the Mount of Olives. So this valley was the one place that these Christians could run to without being molested. Now verses 6 through 7 show two more things that happened during the war. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Now that first sign was reported by Tacitus as the sun darkening during the day. And then bright light at nighttime emanating from the temple. Uh, I think he says it came from heaven and emanating from the temple and lighting up the city. Uh, now we looked at those signs when I preached on Revelation 6 verses 12 through 17, but just to remind you very, very briefly, the, the Roman soldiers were absolutely freaked out by this because they knew it was not a solar eclipse like we're going to have tomorrow. Uh, this was something they recognized as supernatural. God's hand was on it. And both the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus record that a miraculous light emanating from the, uh, the temple lit up the city so brightly, quote, that it appeared to be bright daytime. It appeared to be bright daytime. This miracle literally fulfills verse 7, which says, when evening comes, there will be light. Uh, I think it's a beautiful symbol of the ending of the Old Covenant. That's the darkening of the sun and the beginning of the New Covenant. This is this supernatural light, not the natural, but the supernatural light that God has given. Verse 8 gives another sign. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea, and both summer and winter it shall occur. What is that talking about? Well, while Josephus does indeed mention a miraculous change in the physical water that came into and out of Jerusalem, because this text uses the phrase living waters, which Ezekiel clearly uses to represent the Holy Spirit leaving the temple, it's most likely referring to the living waters of the Holy Spirit leaving the temple, which it did, and going to the ends of the, of the world, especially since identical language is used to refer to the Holy Spirit uh, elsewhere. Nevertheless, having said that, I, th I find it very, very interesting that Josephus says that the literal spring-fed spring stream that watered the city, that provided all of their waters, almost completely dried up during the war, unheard of. Uh, he considers that almost a miracle, that this dried up. And when the war was ended, once Titus had conquered the city, he says that the stream miraculously surged with far more water than it had previously had. Okay? So it could be that the literal waters were intended by God to be a symbol of the spiritual waters. We've seen in the book of Revelation, God has frequently done that. Yes, they're symbols, but the symbols literally happened in history, right? So it could very well be God intended that, but I won't be dogmatic. Either way, you simply cannot say that this verse is not fulfilled, as uh, so many 
pre-mills claim. Verse 9 then goes on to show that Christ's kingdom would expand over all the world after that war. Now, I want to skip down to verse 12, which I believe was fulfilled in AD 79 when Mount Vesuvius blew its top. That had happened under Titus. Now, pre-mills will say this is nuclear war. You know, it's going to happen next year or something. Uh, no, no, no. This happened in 79 AD. Zechariah 14, verse 2. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. What's the context? It's the war in first century. Who fought against Jerusalem? Rome did. So, uh, talking about those Romans, verse 12 says, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. When you read the historical accounts of Mount Vesuvius, this is a perfect description of exactly what happened. This was part of God's payback to Rome. Mount Vesuvius released a massive surge cloud that engulfed the surrounding cities of Pompeii, Herculaneum, Stabii, and Oplantis in an incendiary cloud of of smoke, lava, and ash. Now, burning at an estimated 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is uh, what scientists think was happening there, this volcanic ash would have consumed anyone within a radius before they even hit the ground. It just would have incinerated them. This is a literal fulfillment. Then verse 15 goes on to describe the plagues that hit Rome, humans and animals alike. And Roman historians say that immediately after Mount Vesuvius, plagues hit the entire empire, killing animals and men. Now, the historians blamed it on the ash. Who knows if God used the ash somehow to get these guys sick. But there were disastrous plagues, and that is indisputable. They describe utter panic in the citizenry. So verse 15 was perfectly fulfilled. Then it goes on to describe the Bar Kokhba rebellion of... Uh, A.D. 132 to 135, which was Israel's last hurrah to throw off Rome and the resulting devastation. And from that time on, Jews were not allowed into Jerusalem. However, a Christian church was established there, and pilgrimages were made to Jerusalem every year. You may not have known that little bit of history. Eusebius says that they made pilgrimages to Jerusalem every year, not because Jerusalem was holy, which it was not, but to commemorate this glory cloud standing on the Mount of Olives and uh, to commemorate God's Holy Spirit that was given at Pentecost, now in AD 66, again a Pentecost, is reminding everyone, the Jews included, that they've been abandoned and the Holy Spirit rests with the church. And he says they made pilgrimages just to celebrate that fact. Uh, it's, just, it's just really cool. So anyway, back to verse 5. This verse gives the command to flee from Jerusalem, and therefore the fleeing of Revelation 12 must happen sometime after the glory cloud landed on the Mount of Olives. In other words, sometime after Pentecost of AD 66, and sometime before the Jewish war began. So that gives a very small window uh, of time. So it's a very incredibly important background passage to interpret Revelation 12. Now, the second place where this fleeing is commanded, I think, also helps us to narrow down the timing a bit. And you'll find preterists making mistakes because they will emphasize one passage and not another. Some preterists will emphasize Matthew 24, and they'll ignore what it says in, in, in Luke. 
or in Mark, all three passages together with Zechariah 14 have to be knit together if we're going to get the right uh, timing. Now let me read Luke 21 and verses 20 through 24 first. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land, and wrath upon, upon this people... And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jerusalem has to be surrounded by armies. Okay, first century Christians were commanded to flee the moment they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now there's debate because on when that happened because there were four to five times when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. Uh, so which one do we date? We'll look at that in a bit. Uh, turn next to Matthew 24, verses 15 through 16. <clears throat> Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the second clue is that the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about uh, is standing in the holy place. Not near, but in the holy place. Third clue is given in Mark 13, 14. It just adds one phrase, that the abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not. Okay, with those three hints, together with Zechariah 14, I think we could narrow down the timing of it. I think more work actually needs to be done on this. I was working on this right up to the last minute, uh, even this morning. More work needs to be done, but um, uh, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to be dogmatic because every theory has some strengths and some weaknesses, but I think one has most of the strengths and the least of the weaknesses. I'm leaning in that direction. Um, so I know people are reading on this and they get confused because people are all over the map when they're writing on this subject. So I'm just going to present uh, what these theories are. Some have proposed that this flight of the church into the wilderness or into the town of Pella happened just before Titus came to capture the city. Now certainly armies surrounded Jerusalem in a hostile way in AD 70. But I fail to see how this was either the abomination standing in the holy place uh, or standing where it ought not. And they say, well, Jerusalem was the holy place. And these armies had come into Jerusalem. But that really does not fly because the Jews, you know, they had authorized the Romans for centuries to be in the uh, city of Jerusalem. In fact, in your outlines, they give you a picture of a model of the Tower of Antonia, which is where? It is just outside the court of the Gentiles overlooking. I mean, they had all kinds of places where the Roman armies were in Jerusalem. And so what Jesus is talking about is something new that has not happened before, 
that they need to be watching out for, and it's going to be an immediate clue. As soon as you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, well, that wouldn't be new if it's Jerusalem. So it's got to be something more. I think it's got to be in the temple itself. Um, second, by the time... Um, by the time Roman soldiers occupied the temple, they were standing in the holy place, it was way too late, and everybody agrees. It would have been too late to flee. Third, I failed to see how there was a time and times and half a time after Vespasian uh, surrounded the city. Fourth, even though there were some Jews who were allowed to escape before they occupied the temple, Josephus does not seem to describe a massive number of Jews like we know survived, 144,000. And certainly after Titus walked into the temple with his armies, there would be zero opportunity to escape. So on four levels, 80-70 should just be written off. I'm 100% certain 80-70 is a wrong theory, yet it's by far the dominant theory amongst partial preterists. So just be aware of that when you're doing your studies. A second theory says that this escape happened after Cestius surrounded Jerusalem on Tishri 31 or October 8 of AD 66. Now this used to be my position. I think it's still a credible position. It has a lot of strengths to it. I'm not going to dogmatically dismiss it. Cestius successfully undermined the walls of the temple. He was on the verge of lighting those temple walls on fire. So he was at least up to the holy place, maybe under the holy place. I'm not sure he was in the holy place, but he was at least close. When for no good reason that any historian can figure out, he retreated. And in the retreat of his army, the Jews devastated his legion, almost destroyed the entire legion. They captured uh, the legion's standard, which, wow, that, that doomed the city for sure. That, that was a strike to Roman pride. So some think this was when the Christians fled because Josephus says, after this calamity had befallen Cestius, many of the most eminent of the Jews swam away from the city as from a ship when it is going to sink. But if you read the context of Josephus' comment, it really doesn't appear to be Christians who are fleeing. It appears to be pro-Romans who had been in bed with Rome who realized, whoa, 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 the writing's on the wall for this city. We better... We better leave and uh, get to some safe place. Now, maybe Christians fled at some po that point as well, but that's not what Josephus was referring to. Second, the phrase time and times and half a time doesn't fit. Let me explain what that means. Now, if, as some people say, time and times and half a time is simply a synonym for three and a half years, then yeah, it would fit uh, because it would just refer to the three and a half year that Titus later brought against um, Jerusalem, but it actually seems to be a reference to the three campaigns of Rome to subdue Jerusalem, each of which was separated by a short time when there were no armies there. Okay, so it covers more than four years. The first campaign was a time and refers to Cestius's 66 AD campaign. The second campaign was and times and refers to Vespasian and Titus's two-year campaign, 68 to 69. Then Vespasian gets called back to become emperor of Rome, and so there is a breathing spell in between where they rearm themselves and get ready. Then half a time refers to the six-month um, uh, war that Titus brought 
in which the whole city was completely overthrown. Now, if that interpretation is true, which I am 100% convinced of, then Cestius' defeat simply doesn't fit because verse 14, look at Revelation 12, verse 14, places the flight of the woman when? It's before the time and times and half a time. She's nourished by God in the wilderness during the whole of that three-part Roman campaign. So that by itself seems to make Cestius' campaign come after she flees. Discovering that previously gave me heartburn. It's like, ah, oh, everything's ruined. But you know, you got to follow. Exegesis of the Bible trumps everything. So you just follow wherever it leads you, right? So that's why I'm in trouble this morning. No, not really. I, I'll show you what the solution is, but... Okay, the third problem with the Cestius theory is that he didn't actually stand inside the temple. So even though it's a credible theory, while it solves a problem that I have with my own theory, we'll get to that in a bit, that Josephus says everybody in Pella was destroyed. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, I still no longer can hold to the Cestius thing, even though it would be so convenient to hold to it. Uh, third theory is that the armies surrounding Jerusalem were the heavenly armies that appeared on Artemisius 21 or May 4. Now, you may remember our detailed discussion in chapter 6 of this huge figure of a man in the sky leading uh, all of these uh, countless armies in battle against other heavenly beings, and these armies of chariots are explicitly said by the historians to be encircling or surrounding Jerusalem. Now, since the Roman historian Tacitus, the Jewish historians Josephus and Josephon, and the Christian historian Eusebius says everybody saw these angels surrounding Jerusalem, exactly the same words, this has been hypothesized as being the warning that Christians would need to flee. They certainly saw heavenly armies surrounding Jerusalem on May 4. Now, I'm not saying that these heavenly armies didn't factor into the Christians' decision uh, to flee. If I was there, it certainly would have factored into my decision to flee. But Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, well, not Luke 21, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, both indicate there has to be something more. There has to be an abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, standing where it ought not to be. That seems to be a reference to something that shouldn't be in the temple standing in the temple. So I actually combine theories three and four. But let me give you theory four. Theory four is the governor Florus theory. It says that Florus's Roman army forced its way into the temple and they did so, this is why I combine the two, on the very day that everybody saw these heavenly armies surrounding Jerusalem. So I think this is a, a very uh, legit uh, theory. It fits Zechariah 14 perfectly. It fits the Olivet Discourse perfectly. And there's a great tribulation that follows. Uh, and God had to protect this tiny remnant to reseed the earth. Okay, so an earthly army surrounding Jerusalem came into the temple and a heavenly army surrounded Jerusalem on Artemisius 21. Now, the tension actually happened three to four days earlier. The Sadducees, who were in charge of the temple, had given the governor, Festus, a huge bribe um, uh, 
uh, eight talents of gold. In the past, they were pretty much able to control all of the politics, the Roman politics that happened through these enormous bribes that they would give. But Festus was an incredibly greedy person. He wanted more, and he knew they had more, so he demanded 17 talents. Now, the eight talents that they gave in today's prices, you know, um, had 16,640 ounces of gold. So the first bribe, it was enormous. What did I put down here? It's a bribe of over $20 million. The second bribe that he demands is over $40 million. So he's wanting $60 million bribe. And the high priests were not thrilled with this. You can understand why. They were people who were used to controlling everything with their money. And now this guy is not willing to be controlled. He's insisting that he control the flow of money, and he makes his demands on his own terms. So what the Sadducees did is behind the scenes, they started working politics to get him removed from his office. Uh, they had connections in Rome, and uh, they were the ones who got Rome to appoint him in the first place. They were these manipulators behind the scenes. Money talks, and they had a lot of money. But their resistance to his demand and a series of perceived insults from others enraged, absolutely enraged Florus, and against all rational thinking, he sent his armies into the city, went to the temple, and took the money by force. War had been declared by Israel previously over lesser offenses than that. And so this was really a stupid move on his part. He then added insult to injury by declaring that the temple money was for Caesar anyway, claiming Roman jurisdiction over the priests, over the temple, and over all of the money that they had. Now, he no doubt did this because it angered him that the high priests had been manipulating and controlling him through bribes. So now he's declaring Roman jurisdiction over them. He's turning the tables. This robbery of the temple sparked protests throughout Jerusalem, as you can imagine. He retaliated by killing indiscriminately men, women, and children. Josephus says he killed over 4,000 people. In fact, Queen Berenice was almost killed by these soldiers. They maybe didn't recognize her, but in the mayhem, she was almost killed. In his evangelistic uh, writing to the Jews, Ambrose of Milan indicates that Floris's entry into the temple, and yes, he says, you Jews already know this, his entry into the temple was the Jewish justification for going to war. And I've been very attracted to this view as it fits 99% of the evidence. It fits 100% of the biblical evidence. That's all I care about, right? But if it's 99% of the internal and the external evidence, but there's a problem. The one problem is that if, as three church fathers say, uh, the Christians fled to Pella, then there is a fatal problem with this theory. Josephus claims that shortly after Elul 17, or August 26, every Gentile inhabitant of Pella was killed by Jews in retaliation for the massacre of Jews that took place in Caesarea. Now, it's true that he gives a long list of cities where Jews massacred the Gentiles, so that may not have all happened on one day, but it's the most natural reading. So I think you can see the problem, right? That massacre is three months after these Christians supposedly fled to Pella for safety for the duration of the war. So if they're there in May, they're going to be killed in August. Seems like a pretty almost insurmountable problem for my theory. Um, 
I, some rescue the theory by saying that the Jews only killed the Gentiles, and that is exactly what Josephus says. And these were not Gentiles, these were Jewish Christians. But those same Jews didn't like the Christians too well, so I'm not sure that that one flies. Um, there's others who rescued the theory by saying, no, the Christians fled to Petra, which would have indeed made them safe and to other areas of, uh, uh, of Perea, but there are at least ch three church fathers who said it was to Pella. Others point out that those same church fathers say it was Pella and other places in Perea, so Pella could have been maybe occupied three months later. Maybe they went to other places of Perea and then ended up, here's an empty city, they ended up emigrating there. They say his language is not really clear on where it could be. Others have pointed out that these early church historians were removed by 200 to 400 years from these events, so they may have gotten it wrong, and that is true. So I've not resolved that secular uh, piece of data in, in my mind. So I'm going to give you two other candidates for the abomination. Might as well fill it out, right? I'll be brief. Another possible candidate for the abomination that makes desolate is the Jewish zealot Menahem, a man who successfully fought his way into Jerusalem, so his army surrounded, sort of, declared himself king, entered the temple, killed the high priest. He was indeed an abomination, according to Josephus. He didn't last long. He was killed by a mob. And it faces the same problem as the previous theory. A couple days after he enters the temple, the citizens of Pella are destroyed, but actually maybe that accommodated them going. So Menahem actually is an open... Uh, possibility. It's legit on some levels. The last candidate for the abomination that makes desolate was John of Gishala, the man who killed thousands of his own countrymen, entered the temple, killed the high priest, and set up a mock high priest who was not of the lineage of the priest. He was just a common man, someone whom Josephus said make a mockery of the uh, priesthood, defile the temple. He stood where no non-Levite should stand, so on a, a number of levels, uh, this fits. Josephus says it was an absolute abomination. The, 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 the sexual perversions, all of the different perversions of John of Geshala and his priest, um, and the bloodshed, they even put the blood of people that they killed on the altars, definitely does seem to fit on many levels. But neither of those last two candidates come before the time and times and half a time. In fact, they don't even come before the the war with Vespasian. So Cestius is actually a slightly better candidate time-wise than those two. Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic. The bottom line is there are at least four times that armies surrounded Jerusalem in AD 66 and stood where they ought not. And it's likely that Christians fled during one of those. But having evaluated all of the evidence, I believe the date of our Artemisius 21 or May 4 of AD 66 fits the exegetical evidence of Zechariah 14 by far the best. It has armies, plural, surrounding Jerusalem. Fits the idea of an abomination actually standing in the temple equally well with Menahem and John of Geshala. And likewise, Josephus dates the war as being started by the actions of Florus. To escape on that date would have also spared the church from all of the factional fighting that killed so many Jews that happened from that time on in Jerusalem. So if they fled to Petra and other regions of Perea first, then settled in Pella, then 100% of the evidence does fit. 
In any case, biblical exegesis should always trump secular history. But while I will not be dogmatic on secular history, there are things we can absolutely bank on. So this is my conclusion. I'm going to give you five things you can take to the bank from this passage. First, remind yourself that Satan's kingdom and its days are numbered. He was pushed out of heaven. Then he gets pushed out of Pella in the region of Perea. And Zechariah indicates that his kingdom is progressively going to get pushed out of this world. The days of Satan's kingdom are numbered. Second, do not be mystified by persecution. Once you understand the doctrine of total depravity and you understand how there are demons who take advantage of it, persecution of we Christians makes sense. Demons are our sworn enemies. We need to be their sworn enemies. In any case, Zechariah says that even persecution can be used by God to purify and to strengthen the church. Third, rejoice that the same supernatural wings that gave such aid to first century Christians are supernatural wings that God offers to you. The same God who tenderly nourished his bride in the wilderness tenderly nourishes us today. He loves us. He has given himself to us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Fourth, realize that Christians have power over demons to keep them out of any territory that Christians at least possess. It's good to possess territory, we Christians. We ought to think about that. Uh, for example, each Sunday morning, if we resist demons properly in prayer, we dedicate this building to the Lord. We apply the blood of Christ. We said, say, send your warrior angels to escort all demons out of this place. Satan will not be able to do what he wants to do every morning worship. And that is, according to the parable of Christ and the seed that is sown, he wants to snatch the seed out of your heart as soon as it is planted there. He won't be able to do that. And if you've never prayed, dedicated your house to God and prayed over it and said, Lord, we do not want anything but your Holy Spirit to inhabit this house, uh, you can have that as a sanctuary. If you don't know how to do that, talk to me. But I think it's very, very important that we realize that we can be rid of the presence of the serpent just like they were. And then finally, find hope in the fact that even the worst troubles on earth are limited in duration and cannot go beyond the time that God allows. Our God is sovereign, and Jesus said of the church, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Even the difficult portions give us so much comfort and encouragement. And I pray that our faith would be built up in your most holy word. In Jesus' name we pray.